Well, good morning, church. It is good now to turn our attention to hear God's voice as we open His Word. Uh, as we begin our time together this morning, I want us to start by considering this quote that's on the screen here. Uh, it says this, I think, on the next slide. Here it is. Evil can and will harm us in this life, but it can only do so much harm. Satan can make months or years or even decades miserable for us, but his leash is short and eternity long. Our flesh, our relationships, our feelings are painfully vulnerable for now, but our souls are perfectly and perpetually safe. He will keep your life. Psalm 121 verse 7 says, The life that matters most, the most satisfying and meaningful life, the one that lasts forever. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is our hope that we have as we lift up our eyes from more than six feet off the ground or five foot seven if you're me. And we lift them up to the Lord and we see eternity and all that God has promised us for eternity. This life is brief and the light and momentary afflictions that we experience are not worth comparing with the eternal weight of glory. I want us to consider this truth, to cling to this truth as we continue to look at the life of Jacob in Genesis chapter 31. If you have your Bible, please turn now to Genesis 31. You're welcome to grab one from the seat there in front of you. As you're turning there, I want us to briefly consider what has happened in Jacob's life leading up to today's passage. Uh, there's 20 years of time that elapses between when we see Jacob go to Laban and then where we find ourselves in Genesis 31 today. But going all the way back to the beginning of Jacob's life, there's a lot that we learn about him. We learn right away that his life is going to be surrounded by contention. For even in the womb, he is already wrestling with his twin brother. Siblings said, Amen. In God's providence, we learn that he is going to surpass his station. That is, the older will serve the younger. Though Esau will be born first, Jacob is the one who stands to inherit the promise of God. And the Abrahamic covenant is going to continue through Jacob and his family. This would have been an unthinkable reality in the ancient Near Eastern context. And yet the Lord prophesies this and tells Isaac that Jacob is the one who is going to continue on the promise. Uh, we learn that he comes out of the womb holding on to Esau's heel. And he's given the name Jacob, which means he cheats. We then learn that he is a quiet man, dwelling in tents, and he's contrasted with Esau, who is a red-headed, burly man of the field. Finally, in that birth narrative there for Jacob, we learn that he was a bit of a mom's boy. Okay? So this is Jacob's situation as he begins his life. 
He tricks Esau out of his birthright. He tricks Isaac into blessing him instead of Esau. This enrages Esau, and so Jacob runs away to Haran to live with Uncle Laban. But while he's making his journey to Haran, the Lord meets him at a place that gets the name Bethel, which means house of the Lord. And there in Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 through 15, we read this. It says, And behold, the Lord stood above, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Here God is confirming the Abrahamic covenant that through Jacob he will have offspring, and through his family he will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. This is the promise that God gives to Jacob as he shows up on Laban's front door and he says, Uncle Laban, I've come to live with you. He lives with Laban for seven years working for his daughter Rachel to marry her. And behold, on their wedding night, it's not Rachel, it's Leah. Now the trickster has been tricked. So he works another seven years for Rachel. Now don't forget, Jacob was a quiet man who preferred the comforts of home rather than being out in the field. So this was 14 years of hard labor outside, physical work with his hands, not Jacob's cup of tea. And so every single moment of this was experienced by Jacob as affliction, as suffering, as difficulty. It was not easy. We come to learn that he has more than 12 children with two wives and each of their servants. And then he asks Laban to return home. Now when he asks Laban to do this, Laban then begins to trick Jacob and take away his flock and his wages. He changed them several times because he recognizes that the Lord has blessed him, Laban, because of Jacob's presence. That already God's promise in Genesis 28 was bearing its effects in Laban's life. He was being blessed through Jacob and his family. Jacob then outwits Laban and increases his flock greatly, as we read last week. That brings us to where we are in Genesis chapter 31, and we'll read the text this morning. Genesis 31, starting in verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, and he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him 
harmony. If he said, The spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, The striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that made it to the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob. And I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? We are not regarded by him as foreigners, for he has sold us. And he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now, whatever God has said to you, do. Verse 17, so Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock and his possessions that he had acquired with Adon Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him what he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told to Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kingdom with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done, that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you've done foolish. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. But now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. Why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to me, Because I was afraid. For I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kingdom, point out what I, what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen him. Verse 33, so Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. Then 
Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house, I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked last night. So Father, we pray now that you would speak to us through your word, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us for your glory and our joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to put up here on the screen the entirety of the passage. So here is all of Genesis 31. And I'd like for each of you to read. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Genesis 31. The point is not to be able to read it here on the screen. Because here's what happens. When we hear the story, we can get lost in the spotted and the modeled and the striped and the whatever. We can get lost in the accusations that are being lodged back and forth between Jacob and Laban. And we can kind of think that the main characters in the story are Jacob and Laban. But what I don't want us to miss this morning is the pervasive presence of God in this passage. Every bit of red that you see on the screen is how the Lord is interacting with Jacob, how the Lord is interacting with Laban, how they're recounting how the Lord has faithfully engaged and interacted in their lives up to this point. And you can see that the Lord is all over it. And you can get lost in the 20 years and in the seven years for Rachel and the seven years for Leah and the six years for the flocks and miss the presence of God all throughout Jacob's life. You see, we started with Genesis chapter 28 as the first passage on the screen because that passage is absolutely critical for us when we consider this passage. God made a promise to Jacob, a promise that we see here now 20 years later, the Lord being faithful to fulfill. I will be with you, Jacob. I will Keep you, Jacob, and I will not leave you until I have done everything that I've promised to you. So let's see how this unfolds throughout the passage. Genesis 31, verses 1 through 3, we see the promise of God's presence. Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Here it is. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I 
will Jacob takes stock of his circumstances and he recognizes that they are beginning to move from bad to worse. Laban's sons, they were envious of him and they were beginning to harden their hearts toward him. Laban was no longer regarding him with favor and right into this crisis moment, the Lord speaks to him and he says, Jacob, I will be with you. I haven't lost sight of you. I haven't forgotten you. You're not alone. I've been with you just as I promised you in Genesis chapter 28. And for each day that you've been out in the sweltering heat and laboring for all of this, I have been with you. I told you I will be with you wherever you go. And I will not leave you until I've accomplished all that I promised. Follow of Christ, just to briefly encourage you this morning, with whatever circumstances you brought in here this morning, and whatever circumstances you know you have to go back out to today, can I just encourage you, the Lord sees, the Lord cares, the Lord knows exactly where you're at and what's going on in your life, and his promise to you is that he will never leave you nor forsake you. That for however long, whatever you're experiencing, you've been experiencing, the Lord has been with you in it, and he will continue to be with you and see you through it. His promises are still in effect. He made a promise to Jacob that he would not leave him or forsake him. He promised to be with him. And as we see here at the beginning of this passage, the Lord is making good on that promise. We'll see it again and again passage. The next section of this passage, Genesis 31, verses 4 through 42, we see the promise of God's protection and God's provision. He promises his presence, but he also promises protection and provision. In verses 4 through 10, Jacob recounts to Rachel and Leah what transpired over their lives over the last 20 years. Take note, follower of Christ, reflecting on the past faithfulness of the Lord is good and often necessary. I just want to encourage you with family or with friends, maybe even this afternoon over lunch, take a few moments to consider God's faithfulness in your life and how that encourages you and helps you with whatever may be going on today. It's not just necessary for encouragement and for comfort. But it can also sometimes be helpful when making decisions. And that's what's going on here as Jacob comes and he's leading his family through this crisis moment. What are we to do? And he begins by gathering them and saying, look, look, Rachel, we've seen the Lord do this again and again and again. In verse 7, he says, but your father has cheated me, changed my wages ten times. And then again, but God did not permit him to harm me. This is where we see the promise of God's protection in Jacob's life. Now, this promise of protection, it wasn't a promise to withhold all difficulty. It wasn't a promise to withhold all adversity. But it was a promise to ultimately protect him. And that's what the Lord does for Jacob when Laban is seeking him. In verses 8 through 9, Jacob recounts how God worked miraculously to provide for Jacob and his family. 
Here we see the promise of his provision as God consistently provides for Jacob all that he needs. And then in verses 11 through 13, Jacob gives Rachel and Leah new information. He says to them, the angel of the Lord appeared to me. And he said, I am the God of Bethany. Now arise and go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Now just imagine Rachel and Leah, all of a sudden their husband comes and he's reflecting on all of the faithfulness of the Lord and they're looking at each other and they're like, yes, this is true. Yeah, that's exactly what you are describing is exactly what our experience has been. We have seen the Lord at work in your life and in ours time and time again. We've seen his presence. We've seen his protection. We've seen his provision. So whatever God says to you, like, we better do that, and we better do it right away. So in verses 17 through 21, they wait for an opportune time, and then they flee. We learn in verse 19, though, that Rachel does something kind of odd. She steals her father's household gods. Hold on to that for a minute. We're going to come back to that. Three days later, Laban finds out what's going on, and he initiates an all-out pursuit. He has an all-points bulletin out on Jacob and his family, and he is mounting his camel and taking off after them. Now, as soon as Laban gets close, we read in verse 24 that God came to Laban, and he said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And so here again, we see God's promise of protection. He comes to the one who seeks harm on Jacob, and he says to him, say nothing to him. Don't harm him, don't touch him, don't even say anything to him, even good or bad. Verse 25, Laban catches up, and the confrontation ensues. Laban accuses him of running away, fleeing secretly, cheating him out of the opportunity to send off his family with a party. And here's the thing, Laban's not wrong. Jacob did do that. He ran away from Laban under the cover of night when Laban couldn't pursue after him right away. In verse 31, Jacob even admits to it. He tells Laban that he did it this way because he was afraid. Now just imagine this, you're Jacob, and you've seen all that the Lord has done over the last 20 years, how he's consistently provided and protected and spoken to you, reminding you of his presence, and even with all of that, Jacob is motivated by fear. It humanizes him a little bit and makes it a little bit more understandable how you and I might be feeling if we were in similar circumstances. Even with all the promises of God, sometimes fear can overtake us. And even as we reflect on it, and even as we hear God speaking to us through his word, we can still be driven and controlled by fear. Laban's not wrong. Jacob did wrong by Laban. But in verse 29, Laban is wrong. He tells Jacob, this is so good after what God just said to him. He says, it's in my power to do harm to you. Oh, it's not. The Lord God Almighty just spoke to him the night before and said, buddy, it ain't going to happen. Right? But here's Laban, classic bully, showing up. And he's like, you know, I can take you out, right? Jacob's like, all right, whatever. 
And then there's the final point of contention Laban has with Jacob, is that he stole his gods. Now we've got to take just a brief moment on this. Uh, there is all kinds of speculation as to why Rachel would have stolen the household gods. There has been all kinds of ink spilled on pages in commentaries as to why Rachel would have done this and her motivation and what it would have meant. And the reality is, the text doesn't tell us. It's not here in the passage. And so let's be careful not to speculate too much, but let's let the Word of God speak and hear what God wants to communicate to us in this passage. So while we cease from speculating, there is something that we definitely do see. There is a sharp point of contrast that is being drawn between Laban's gods and the God of Jacob. What we see here is God blessing Jacob again and again and again. God providing for Jacob. God protecting Jacob. God showing up to Laban and speaking. And Laban's gods? They're stolen. They're thrown into a bag. And the text is sure to tell us that Rachel's excuse for sitting on top of them is that she can't arise because the way of women is upon her. There is a sharp contrast being made between the gods of Jacob, between the God of Jacob and the gods of Laban. Between the one true God and all other so-called gods. Brothers and sisters, our God is unrivaled. There is no passage of scripture where you will hear that God has been stolen and he's being sat upon. It doesn't happen. There's nothing anywhere close to it. There is none to compare with the Lord Almighty. In fact, this is what Psalm chapter 115 declares. It says, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, O follower of Christ, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. All other so-called gods are worthless, lifeless, impotent, cannot do anything for anyone at any time. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Many other voices may promise to us their presence, their protection, or their provision. But none can deliver Accept the Lord. And let's be careful, lest you and I think how foolish those primitive people of the past must have been to trust in the idols that they made out of wood and metal. Because the reality is we still worship idols today. Maybe not ones that are made out of wood. Maybe not ones that are made out of stone. But let me ask this. 
In what do you seek your security? In what do you seek your safety? Where do you look for protection and provision? Is it your job? Is it your looks? Your money? Your stuff? Is it sex? Politics? Sports? Social media? Is it your family? Or even ministry? You see, it's not just the things that are obviously evil that we can put our hope, our trust, our confidence, our seeking after protection and provision. We can take something that is good and even make that into an idol when we exalt it above the Lord. Even a good thing can become an idol when we make it the main thing. How do you know when you've made something into an idol? I want to encourage you to ask yourself these two questions that you see here on the screen. Question one, am I willing to sin in order to get it? Am I willing to sin in order to get it? If the answer to that is yes, then that might be an idol in your life. And question two, if I don't get it, do I respond sinfully? Am I willing to sin in order to get it? And when I don't get the thing that I'm wanting, do I respond sinfully? How you answer those questions may help you discern in your heart whether or not you fashioned an idol, a lifeless idol, an idol that cannot deliver all that God promises. So yes, Rachel acts Foolishly, And we don't know why she did it, but what we see is a sharp contrast between the God of Jacob and all other gods. None can deliver except the Lord. After Laban scours all of Jacob's belongings, Jacob is angry. You could just imagine someone rifling through all of your stuff. And Jacob has kept it in all this time, 20 years of pent-up rage toward Laban, and baby, he is going to let it fly, right? This is his moment. And so he airs all of his grievances, and then the whole passage reaches its climax in Genesis 31, verse 42. He says this, If the God of my father the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away and God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and he rebuked you last night. Brothers and sisters, this is what the text is pointing us to. If the God of my father had not been on my side. Jacob recognizes that without the Lord, he would have been sunk a long time ago. He reflects on his 20 years and all his hard labor and affliction, and he acknowledges that it is all owing to God's grace that he is where he is on that day. It was not due to his work ethic. It was not due to his perfect morality because we have seen him sin and fail time and time again. It was not because of his charm or his wit or his cunning or craftiness. It was not out of chance. No, Jacob was blessed abundantly by the Lord. 
The Lord has been with him. The Lord is the one who has been keeping him, and nothing has been able to thwart the good and gracious work of God that he has done in Jacob's life. In Genesis 28, verse 15, the Lord not only said that he would be with Jacob, but he said that he would keep Jacob. Now, what does it mean to be kept by the Lord? We see this all throughout Scripture. We hear in the benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you, right? So what does it mean for the Lord to keep us? In Psalm chapter 121, and you're welcome to turn there now if you like. In Psalm 121, we have the most concentrated description of what it means for the Lord to keep us. Uh, this would have been a song of ascent. And so the people would make a journey from all the surrounding countryside into Jerusalem to worship at various festivals. And they would sing these songs as they made their way up the treacherous roads that led to the city. Along the road, the people met threats from above and below, most of which they could not see or predict. They were fully exposed to scorching heat and volatile weather. Robbers hid in the caves and the hills, knowing exactly when to expect their victims. The people knew they had to go, but they didn't know if they would make it. Surely some of them didn't, and so they felt fragile, vulnerable, and unsafe. Maybe you've been in that same position. When God's people felt their need for keeping along the road to Jerusalem, they didn't cover their mouths in fear. Instead, they... They meditated on truth, and their lips exploded with praise. In Psalm 121, we learn what it means to be kept by the Lord. They say this, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Follower of Christ, the Lord is with you. And the Lord will keep you. If the God of Jacob had not been on my side, this is the same reality that we can say if the God of Jacob had not been on my side. And so Christian, I need you to hear this morning that the God of Jacob is on your side. If you are in Christ, if you've turned from your sins and you've trusted in Jesus to save you, then the exact same promises that God made to Jacob are made to you. In Christ, God is 100% for you. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is on your side. In Romans 8, verses 31 through 32, we read this here on the screen. What then shall we say to these things? If 
God is for us, who can be against us? It's a question being asked with the force of a declaration. If God is for us, there is nothing that can stand against us. For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser, from the hard to the easy, from the seemingly insurmountable to the easily surmountable. Since God did not spare his own son, there is nothing that God will withhold from his children. The hard part, delivering up his son to torture and to death, is the seemingly insurmountable obstacle. And if that can be done, then the lesser thing, the easy thing, will surely be done. His freely given to us all that Christ bought for us. All things. In Christ, you have the same promise of Jacob, the promise of God's presence. For the God of Jacob says to you that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Not only the same promise of his presence, but also the promise of protection. For the God of Jacob says to you, Christian, in Romans chapter 8 a bit further, it asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. and you can add a hallelujah to the end of that. Brothers and sisters, what better news is there for us? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Of Christ. You have the promise of his presence, the promise of protection, and the promise of God's provision. For the God of Jacob says to you in Philippians 4.19 that he will supply to you every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is not a promise of health, wealth, and prosperity. Unless you leave this morning thinking that's what you heard, I want to say it clearly. Not that. Everyone say not that. Okay? It's the promise that God gave to Jacob in Genesis 28. I'm with you. I will keep you. For I will not leave you until I've done all that I've promised. It's that last part that we cannot miss. God is at, your, is at work in your life and in mine, yes, for our good, but ultimately for his glory. In bringing about all things in accordance with his perfect, sovereign, and good will to the praise of his glorious grace. And so the quote we began with this morning, after hearing all of that, we bring it up again. Evil can 
and will harm us in this life. So it's not a promise to protect us from all of that. But it can only do so much harm. Satan can make months or years or even decades miserable for us. But his leash is short and eternity long. Our flesh, our relationships, and our feelings are painfully vulnerable for now, but our souls are perfect and perpetual. Our God is not a pampering God. He is a perfecting God. And He is at work in our lives and in this world for the glory and praise of His name and for the ultimate and eternal good of His people. So Christian, you are invincible so long as God still has a purpose in your life to accomplish His plan in this world. He will be with you, He will protect you, and He will provide for you all that you need to live a life that glorifies Him and shows the surpassing worth of Christ above all. I love this quote here from John Piper. He says, what an impact these truths should have on our lives. We should not be like the world if these things are so. Most of the world chooses its lifestyle because it fears sickness and theft and terror and loss of job and a dozen other things. But to the follower of Jesus, the Lord says, the Gentiles seek all these things. You seek the kingdom first. God will give you what you need. And what you lose or lack in the kingdom ministry of love and sacrifice and suffering will work for your good and come back to you in some God-designed way a hundredfold. And I would add, maybe on this side of eternity, but a hundred percent on the next side. Follower of Christ, God is on your side, and He will keep you. For if the God of Jacob is for us, who is? So Father, we thank You. We thank You for all of the hope that you give us in your word. We thank you for your great and precious promises that we can bank our very lives and eternities on. God, we thank you for stories of your faithfulness that we see in scripture that remind us of who you are and what you've done and they show us, God, that you can do it again and again and again. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that they would not seek their safety or security, that they would not seek for the promise of protection or provision in anyone or anything other than you and you alone. And that, Father, as you continue to demonstrate your faithfulness to those promises, that you and you alone would receive the glory for it. Father, I pray for those in this room this morning that have maybe heard the truth from your word and they recognize that everything that they've been seeking, safety and security, protection and provision in, has consistently come up short. And that this morning they have heard of the one true God, the faithful God, God Almighty, who sits in the heavens and does all that He pleases. I pray, O oh God, that this morning they would come to You, that they would see You as beautiful and true and as their only hope 
in life and in death. God, our lives are in your hands today and as we leave this room and as we go into this week and through eternity. And we're so thankful that they are. For if you are for us, none can stand against us. Christ's name we pray.